active recovery is the way to go for sure because we recover through our muscles contracting, through getting blood flow to the area. All those, all those things are, are beneficial. So sitting on the couch is never the answer. And some of that becomes you know, based on how long people have been training for and how self-aware they are. You kind of get to know where that is, but you do have to be cautious on both ends of people that aren't as sure they lean too much on the, well, I just need to sit on the couch today and really just recover from a hard training day. But some people think they're going lighter than they are, but there's, and there's some things to be aware of on your own in terms of like, how's your breathing? How's, how's heart rate? How's different things in terms of there are some things to look out for. If you're, if you're huffing and puffing, even if you think you're going light, it's probably more intense than, than you think it is. And knowing, and that's where self-discipline comes in of knowing where that line is for is this an active recovery day or am I getting into another another training day because one can be extremely beneficial and one can be uh, can set you up for for problems for the next training days or training week Yogi Triathlete Podcast. This is the place where we further our mission to create a better world by bringing meaningful conversations to the endurance sports world. And today we've got an amazing guest whose purpose is to assist all of us to live a thriving, strong, and confident life in the body we were given to live in, which I love those words. I took some of those words right from your, um, right from your website. I'm here with my co-host, Coach BJ, and Dave Pachkowski of Inside Out Strength and Performance, a local Carlsbad company founded on the idea of that being injured, limited, and in pain is no way to live the life you were called to live. And I absolutely, I mean, my God, I just love that. Dave has all the labels and certifications, including a doctorate of physical therapy. He's treated several of my ultra-running pals and has made a guest appearance at our weekly run group to give us all activation exercises to help us run efficiently and after run protocols to keep our joints healthy. Dave, welcome to the show. Jess, BJ, really appreciate being on here. Uh, excited for this talk. <laughs> and he's got me ergonomically set up. I'm standing on a 45-pound plate right now to get me lined <laughs> up with the mic. We're in your awesome studio, which Dave's got such a sweet setup, so you're not even that far from the beach. Right off the highway, so super easy access for people. And we're literally on the base floor of your townhome, which is above us. I, I was telling you before we put the mics on, Dave, that these exercises that you brought to our run group that day, we're still doing every week. We're doing the warm-ups and the cool-downs. My first question is really like, how important is it to take those few minutes before you're doing an exercise like running? Let's just say running, for example, because pretty much everybody that listens to this is running or walking um, as a part of their exercise regime. Yeah, extremely important. It's uh, all the runners I work with, if I ever ask what their warm-up is, it's the first mile to two miles typically is the, the answer I tend to get from it. There's not much of a structured warm-up involved, but even just, it, it doesn't have to be, a, I think people get overwhelmed thinking that it has to be this long warm-up routine that they have to go through, but typically two to five minutes is plenty enough to get some of the right muscles kicking in, just get kind of dial in your movement for, and especially for runners with how much running's done on single leg, which is 100% of it it's important to do some single leg activities leading up to it to just prime some of the right muscles before running. I never thought of that. Yeah, running is you're always on single One leg. Minute. That actually leads to the question that you were talking about earlier, BJ, about what you see in oh, yeah, yoga. yoga. So teaching, teaching yoga, you stand, you're in front of the classroom and the way that we teach, we don't practice. We're teaching. So we are watching the class, watching the students. And we bring them to the balance phase of the class. You know, the, the um, eagles, the tree, you know, one leg up, the warrior threes. And majority of people find that extremely challenging. They're teetering out. And, and, and I always encourage them. Like, that's great. Like, the fact that you can be in this pose and you see that you're wobbly shows that you have areas to improve upon. So why is it that most people... Maybe setting you up here, but why is it that most people find it so challenging to to stand on one leg? It's a it's a huge problem, and with the runners, there's some very you know, very talented runners I work with that have trouble standing on one leg for longer than ten seconds without wobbling. And we say standing on one leg, not there's a there's a standard of just standing on a leg and being able to wobble a little bit and balance. But 
to, to be stable on one leg is different than just being able to simply meet the criteria, yes or no. It's how well, shouldn't see any drop in the hips as you're going, shouldn't see any uh, wobble in the ankle or rolling in and out of the knees. So it, there's a difference between just being able to do it and being able to do it with stability. And uh, to, to answer your question, it's there's strength requirements for that. There's Our balance systems are pretty complex. There's our visual system, which we overly rely on. There's our called vestibular system or within our inner ear. That's think going on a roller coaster and getting off and feeling dizzy. And then there's all the receptors in our joints and there's how well our hips are stabilizing. So standing on a single leg seems like such a, such a simple activity, but there's a lot of moving parts with it that uh, if neglected and not trained like anything else, uh, gonna see some limitations. And those limitations then show up when people are running how many reps over the course of, especially with some of these ultra runners I work with, thousands and thousands and thousands of repetitions, even slightly incorrect movement, knee rolling in, ankle collapsing causes some of the common things we see, plantar fasciitis and hip problems, knee problems, all those things are pretty closely closely linked. So how can people, I think you, Paul, you bring up a really good point when we are working on our balance you see a lot of knees wobbling, a lot of ankles, the foot's really working. So what's a way to, because that's not necessarily a great way to build your balance, right? You're, you're saying just standing on well, one leg? Well, like when people are standing on one leg and you're getting all this wobbly. So is that good or should they be like finger against the wall or hanging on to something? Well, how would you recommend if somebody is, because we see a lot of the, the wobbling, which, I mean, I guess it's like the muscles are activating and the body is trying to find that balance, but are we harming or helping? It's a, it's a loaded question. I wish there was a more straightforward answer, but one, from my standpoint, I want to know why, why are they having trouble balancing of all those things that are going on? Is it because uh, some people simply have, quote, bad balance, but a lot of times it's more of a strength issue. If your ankles doesn't have full mobility, that causes... Uh, limitations of how well your joints are talking to your brain pretty much so that can affect your balance so if it's a mobility issue is it a hip strength issue a core strength issue any of those things can cause some of that wobble so just to say holding on won't necessarily do it unless it's maybe a true balance issue I want to get to the root cause of what that is is that are, are there are their hips not strong enough to support them in that single leg stance are their ankles super locked up that doesn't cause for the right signals up and down and Otherwise, we're just kind of shooting guesswork at it instead of addressing the, the root cause of why it's, why it's happening. I remember when you came to run group, our answer to everything was, was it glutes and core? Glutes and core, you're like, um, yeah, I mean, in the short answer, <laughs> yeah, core is good. But now I'm realizing that there's so many different layers and we're talking about brain-body connection. connection. Mm. And how tied in is that brain-body connection with body awareness? It's, it's huge. And talking single leg balance, uh, there's like we were just talking about, there's a very direct connection, but in anything, how, how confident we are, what, what we're telling ourselves, how we're telling ourselves about our movement. And we bring, we bring pain into it not to go deep down a rabbit hole, but bring pain into it. And that messes a lot of things up with, with brain body connection and people that are in pain, there's a physical component to pain, but there's a huge mental component of that, there's huge psychological components to it. And the stories we're telling ourselves of, yes, I think this is going to hurt. There's a better chance that that's going to hurt. And that's where we see, especially in the chronic cases. So in an acute case, I twist my ankle, there's going to be some swelling. There's going to be a bunch of chemicals that get sent there to help with healing and cause physical pain. But if that ankle sprain becomes a recurring issue over the course of years and years, and you think anytime you roll over a curb, it's going to hurt there's a better chance that it's, it's going to hurt. And that's moving away from the physical side of it and more into the, that mind body connection. There's a lot deeper, deeper rooted thing of what we're telling ourselves and the body tends to, tends to follow suit pretty well with some of that stuff. So if we're repeatedly, what we repeat over and over becomes ingrained. Mm -hmm. So if, if I was talking to some runners at this race at the 50 K and asked them if they ran just because they were spectating, they're like, no, I, I can't run. I have shin splints. It's so finite, right? It, th that's their, their stance. I have shin splints, cannot run. So whether they have shin splints and to what degree they have it, probably doesn't It's what they believe. 
right? If they believe that this is going to limit them from running, well, first thing, let's back up. Do they want to run? I guess that's the first question. Yep. And then second, is this belief so strong and so true that it's going to keep them from doing what they love? So that's that mental component you're, you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and shin splints, uh, another one of those things, there's a lot of factors that go into shin splints. It can, again, we look at, want to look at ankle and knees and the, we look local, but also I mean, hips and hips and core and just glutes and core play a, play a role in that too. Glutes and core, a good starting point at least. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Of So on both ends, if someone doesn't want to run or there's some fears or limitations around uh, whether that's a fear of failure, whether it's a fear of succeeding and doing better, there's all these things that can replay some of those stories that are being told then, and whether that's on the extreme of not wanting to run or of so much of their life is wrapped up in running that if they can't, both ends of that are going to produce a potential negative result and not just uh, not just the ones that don't want to run, but also the ones that, hey, this is my life, this is what I do for stress relief, this is what I do for fun, this is what, and if I can't do that, you think going to be a little more anxious when when a little injury sets that might not normally be serious, but because you have so much tied up in it, it's going to cause a heightened response of pain than someone that if they're like, oh, well, if I have to take a few weeks off of running, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, this is 100% the rabbit hole we want to go down. Um, it's attachment, right? It's yeah. Well, it's, well and it's, it's identity, right? So you've seen this. And, and really what we're talking about, and, and we talked about this with um, the sports psychologist we launched today, and BJ works with it. Um, as he physically and mentally trains our athletes, and I work with it as a mental coach, and you work with it as um, in, in the physical therapy and the mobility and the performance piece, is that we're really talking about behavior change and busting up patterns and you know, creating new neural pathways in the brain and for, in, and for movement and for creating these um, brain-body connections that are very healthy. So when you see that, walk in, because I know you've had this experience, like that person who's like, it's, and, and BJ has lived this, right? Like his, his identity was triathlon and that got taken away. So when you, when this happens, like with somebody that you're working with, how do you start to kind of get to that root? Like how, where do you even begin? Because it's, it's, you can give them the exercises all they want, but you know that there's something bigger there that's really preventing them from living that that confident, thriving life. Yeah, when when they're when they're coming in, and that it happens more more frequently than than you think. Whether that identity is running, whether it's playing with their kids, whether it's just being a their job. A lot of people tied into tied into that as well. So it's it's super common. And and for me, have to know where that where that line is too of when to when to refer out to if there's you know more deeply rooted things that isn't within my scope, but within people coming to see me, the biggest thing is trying to restore some of that confidence. And especially if it's something that have seen success with in similar patients before, there's a roadmap that we can follow. And from a physical, from a mobility standpoint, from a strength standpoint, reassuring them that this is not life ending, career ending. Cause a lot of people come in with that. Well, I read on WebMD that I'm never gonna be able to run again. So they, they come in with this, <laughs> this story they're telling themselves, but being able to cut down some of those, you know, break down those barriers, after we identify what those barriers are, and that comes from asking follow-up questions, knowing what their start, what what their knowledge is, what their starting point is, what they're telling themselves. Of uh, you, you ask follow-up questions and keep asking why's and why and why, and eventually they'll uh, people people are in tune with their with their body, and uh, whether they know it or not, you can usually get to some of the deeper things by just listening, by asking follow-up questions, and letting them tell you. It might start out. People come in with a knee injury, but you say, okay, well, why, why do you need, like, why, why is this so important? Well, I like to run. Why do you like to run? It, uh, it feels good. And then you keep asking these whys, and it's like, he finds out, it's like, this is my stress relief. If I, when I don't run, I'm not, I'm not a good, I'm not a good husband. I'm not a good wife. I'm not a good father or mother for my parent. You get to these deeper things, and there's much, uh, much more into it than simply, can I run? can I run X amount of miles? Yes or no. There's, there's these deeper layers that, and once you, once you identify those, once they can verbalize those, then we can start to address them. And it's going to look a little different person to person. And it's really, it's, it's really common, like you said, and common to the point where it's like within your scope a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Do you utilize those things like it's my stress relief, it's I'm a better wife or I'm a better husband or a better mom or whatever it may be. Do you use those almost as their points, their driving points to do the work? That those very things that the activity gives them is basically almost like the, the fruit, the reward. Yeah, absolutely. And the, all the, the exercises that give them have to be tied into that. No one wants to do a say a glute bridge just to do a glute bridge like you have to tie that into why it's going to help them get back to running and then link that to their deeper why of why it's going to help with whatever whatever that more driving driving forces is for them so absolutely you have to tie that into it or compliance won't happen and it's a lot I'd say it's even more challenging in those it's it's easier it's easier to get someone who get someone motivated who isn't normally the motivated type. It's a lot harder to throttle those people back that don't know how to throttle back. And when you mentioned, you mentioned slowing down, Jess, that's a huge piece of it is okay. Everyone, everyone's good about hitting hard, hitting hard. Okay. I can do more. What, what more can I add in? What more can I add in? What more can I add in? But when you have to tell someone, Hey, we got to throttle it back a little bit for these couple weeks, it's really important that we manage volume, get this under control, Trust me, you will be able to get back to it, but that's a much harder conversation to have with people. I, th- I think, and that's the exact point of, of why detaching from your watch every now and then from the numbers is, is, is important. I think that driving factor to, to constantly, like if you tell them to, to keep going, like you've got to hit your 50, 60 miles a week, they'll keep doing that despite the, the pain or suffering that they're feeling. It's so true though, when you ask them, to, to step back maybe 10 or 15 miles. It's not a tangible, like they can't see the benefits of it immediately. They can't see that Strava number that says, mm-hmm. you know, I've hit my PR for the training for the whole year. So as you continually work with these people to, to step back, how do you, how do you help them embrace that? Is there any tools or any, um, connections you can make for people I, I see it a lot is, is a reason I'm asking and it's tough with this external stimulus to pull away to pull away from I'm not getting in my mileage I'm not getting in my volume that I've always done when that volume and mileage could have been the reason why you're here to help fix this opportunity yeah and the the biggest thing I think with that is and where I have to meet people with where they're at is knowing what they're what, what is their big goal? What is their big goal? Not just because uh, a lot of people have several goals of they're chasing, say, X amount of miles per year, per week or per month. But it's like, is that your is that your big goal? Is that what they want to accomplish? Is it just how many miles you can run this month? If you hit that many miles, are you happy and you can retire from running? And for most people, that's a that's a no. There's usually there's something there's something else in there. And you keep kind of like the keep asking why is you keep digging to what what is it miles for a year is it a certain race is it and once you find what that most important thing is for them then that's the focus of hey if this is we have this calendar on our day this is the race you want to do this has to happen if you want to be ready to run that and it comes down to honestly telling them that this is what it's going to take if you want to hit this amount of miles this month go for it but you're setting yourself up for potential to miss your bigger goal, which is say a, a certain race or something like that. Those light bulb moments with your patients, how does that make you feel? Let's tie it back to you. So when you, you're, you're, you're asking these questions why, and finally they come out with it and you see that aha, like, oh, I get it. In order to be doing this for the rest of my life, I need to stop and do this exercise now. Does that bring you joy? Like, how does that feel as a, as a business owner? Yeah, absolutely. It brings, it brings joy. And for the reason that I know those are the people that do really, really, really well with, with rehab, the ones that can accept that and come to that. And then you see the, the wheels turn a little bit. They start to ask some follow-up questions to get some clarity with it, where initially, and, and naturally people come in, they don't, they don't know exactly how I can help them a lot of times, and they're a little closed off. And once you get that, where they start to see, okay, yeah, this starts to make sense, and they're asking questions and taking control of their health, those are the people that crush it in here. And that's, that's what's exciting to see is because they do good. I, it's fun to work with them when they're doing well and listening and because that creates better results and that creates just a much more fun atmosphere in here. And that's somebody who is like, they're just, they just want to crush everything that comes their way. 
So we see the athletes that get really caught up with like, I'm going to run every day for the year of 2019. And then, you know, and I'm going to do this many a month. And we get caught up in these numbers that are in the future and not realizing that that's not just the only goal that we can crush and get that same mm-hmm. feeling like that. If it's, if you're rehabbing for something, if you're, if you're prehabbing for something like crush that, if you're picking your kids up from school, crush that. If you're making dinner, crush that. Like if you're taking five minutes to activate your glutes and core, crush mm-hmm. that. And that, um, when we have this drive to, cause those people that are like running every day for 2019 and this many miles a month, like that's awesome. There's an amazing drive there and discipline to get there, but it's being selectively applied. And so you can apply that drive to making sure that this body that you're living in is ship shape for the goals that you have. How important can you speak to like the stress rest and adapt process in the body? Yeah, it's it's a you know huge piece of anyone that's that's regularly active. The the stress is where we you know to put it simply, the stress is where we temporarily break the body down, but the rest is what allows us to to build back up. And there's we call our max recoverable volume, and that's a, a certain line we have that we can we can occasionally go above that line, but average throughout the course of a week, month, year, we have to stay, there's certain, a, a certain level that we can, we can get to before things start to break down that we tend to see. Now, there's also a couple things we can do to change that line a little bit, and that's where some of the prehab stuff comes in. That's where building a base level of strength and movement and some of those things, we can creep that line up a couple notches that allow us to push that a little further. But physiologically, there is a point for everyone that we can't consistently work above that line without recovering. If that average stays above where that recovery line is, something's going to eventually break. And that might be a tendonitis. That might be a, a lot of times that's an overuse injury. It's not just a one time my leg breaks. It's, it's usually a, it's usually in the form of an overuse injury. It's in the form of getting sick. It's in the form of feeling tired and run down and exhausted that you're not showing up in other areas of your life. So there's a lot of factors and signs to be aware of that when you're consistently pushing above that line, we have to either throttle back and usually simultaneously try and push that line up as well. What about, um, like when we think about rest, I think it scares people because they think, my God, I can't just sit around and do nothing. But what do you think about active recovery? You know, after, after like I had a long run yesterday, four hours in the heat, doing some good climbing and things like that. And today was recovery in the pool and then I might go out for a recovery run later, mostly because I am uh, need to be running at night with our buddy Lisa at mm-hmm. Tahoe. And I'm like, I need to start running at night so mm-hmm. I can like get my body used to that. Um, but it would just be a super easy recovery run, which when I first heard recovery run, I was like, what? That doesn't even make sense. That's for psychos. But now I get it, you know, training that, that low end just to get the legs moving. And sometimes that means I walk for the first five or 10 minutes and then go into a really nice slow pace. What do you think about active recovery versus like the sitting on the couch? Yeah, active, active recovery is the way to go for sure. Cause we recover through our muscles contracting through getting blood flow to the area. All those, all those things are, are beneficial. So sitting on the couch is never the answer. And some of that becomes you know, based on how long people have been training for and how self-aware they are. You kind of get to know where that is, but you do have to be cautious on both ends of people that aren't as sure they lean too much on the, well, I just need to sit on the couch today and really just recover from a hard training day. But some people think they're going lighter than they are, but there's, and there's some things to be aware of on your own in terms of like how's your breathing? How's how's heart rate? How's different things in terms of there are some things to look out for. If you're if you're huffing and puffing, even if you think you're going light, it's probably more intense than than you think it is. And knowing, and that's where self discipline comes in of knowing where that line is for is this an active recovery day or am I getting into another another training day? Because one can be extremely beneficial and one can be uh, can set you up for for problems for the next training days or training week. And that's why you get a coach. Absolutely. Or some advisor, because you're going to be in that recovery, whatever it is. And most often than not, it's good for you. It's you're at the right, right effort level. But then you get the athlete that says, but I felt great. 
but it felt great. So I went out, so I went hard, right? And then on their plan on that third day is another hard workout because it was originally planned because the day before was supposed to be easy. Mm -hmm. So then they stick to that. So now they've got three hard days in a row and there's no adaptation happening. <laughs> this is where the cycle happens. I think it's good to, to point this out. No, it is because it's really funny. Like when I see BJ reading like through the training peaks, he's like, no, I don't even like what you PR'd something. Like, why would you wait? No, this isn't even possible because it was a recovery <laughs> swim. So how did you PR your 100? Like, that's how awesome. is that even possible? It is awesome. I'm just like, this is awesome. This is so great. You're like, nope, tomorrow, easy workout again. Yeah. Take a true rest day. Maybe it isn't an, an active recovery day. Maybe it's just like, just hang out and go for a walk. Walking. Yeah. Walking what? is a big thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of when the athletes get into that, that zone that we're talking about, the overuse, I found really just a, a mindful walk of like, feel your core. Like when you like really be into your breath and your core, feel your legs, feel that, that feel that leg swing from the hip, like feel that, feel your foot hit the ground. That to me for 10 or 15 minutes probably would take a lot more energy than, than a, a run because you're super hyper-focused on how your body's reacting in just a walk. So I used to call them mindful walks, mm -hmm. mindful walks, but it's, and I would, the feedback I would get all the time is, oh yeah, I noticed my core. And so then it, then it compares to every other time they go out for a walk when they're just, you know, listening on their phone or zoning out and they're not thinking about the opportunity they have to have body awareness. So walks are, are amazing, but yeah, it comes up more often than not where people will feel good and they'll go through that easy training session and they'll push it. But yeah, I think the rest stress adapt is a huge huge component in having an athlete reach their potential. If they're out there constantly training, right? Cause we all like to train. We want to be healthy and, and, and hit the numbers and be out there active. But if their goal, like you said, is a bigger event, are they staying focused to reach that bigger event? So yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done mm -hmm. <laughs> in the, in the, in the watching of athletes, um, level of performance like level of intensity. And I think that was a good key you just said about the breathing. Just check in with how you're breathing. I was just going to say, can you speak a little bit to breathing, like thoracic breathing, diaphragmatic breathing, and like really how that can affect, um, I see that more and more as I work with athletes who are working with PTs, like they're like, I'm really, we're really working on my breathing. And so some athletes might be like, what? My breathing? How, is it, how does that even have to do with how my body's moving? Of course I breathe. If I didn't breathe, I'd be dead. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it, it's become a, there's always these pendulum shifts too. And it's become, uh, knowing, you know, knowing when certain, certain breathe, like we talked diaphragmatic breathing is, is huge for recovery for sure. So different things of being able to get in that diaphragmatic breath is what gets our, so we have our fight or flight nervous system. Like we're getting attacked by a, a bear, everything we want to be able to either fight it or run from it. And we have our rest and digest. So what, where we should be when we're just hanging out, resting, uh, heart rate's lower. That's when our recovery takes place. Now, the problem with our society now is that we're always in this heightened state. So we don't get out of it because even though there's no physical bears attacking us, we have emails and we have emails that demand our attention. We have stress with kids or family or friends, we have, uh, there's a ton of things that can cause us to stay in that state. And if we're always in that state, if we don't activate that diaphragmatic breathing, then we're not fully hitting some of those recovery things. And when we feel our neck and chest always tensed up, that's what we see a lot of people. And when pain enters the equation, it's even more of the default response is we're only in this upper chest mm -hmm. breathing pattern, only breathing from our neck, very shallow breaths, doesn't allow our body to ever feel relaxed and, and heal the way it needs to. That's the you know, recovery rehabilitative side, but also on the performance side, as we better use and activate our diaphragm, we can better use our core, we can better use our, our hip muscles, we have better performance, our, our VO2 is better. There's, there's a lot of things that play a role in that from a performance standpoint too. So being able to train that just as you would anything, we can't just wait until, until the last mile to start working on that. That's something that has to be trained, probably starting on your back with your feet kicked up. Can you take a full 360 degree breath from your diaphragm consistently. And then can we do that just standing? And then can we do that when we're running? And that's the same progression we would take someone through with, with strengthening, with building up from no running experience. It's the same, same way. So how would they know if they're breathing 360 degrees? 
one way to do it, I, I like to use tactile cueing things, whether that's if you take a belt and, and put it on your, your abdomen, kind of right below the, the rib cage. Don't, don't snug it so tight that you can't breathe, or it'll, but just enough to give a cue. And I, I like to use a resistance band, but something that you should feel your stomach pushing out into forward, back, side to side. A lot of people, when they think diaphragmatic breathing, they're just breathing up and down from their belly, but we're not getting that full 360-degree expansion that we're after with something like that. And that, that's an easy way to check of, of feeling in lying on your stomach, feeling if you can push into the ground, push out to the side and push towards the ceiling are some ways to see if you're doing that or not. A lot of people think they are, but they'll still feel their chest rising before their, before their stomach. Can you speak to the, like the muscular um, piece of breathing? Because breathing's just a muscular action. I mean, you even have secondary breathing muscles like in the neck, right? And so can you just speak to that as far as like, um, like breathing prior to a race, perhaps, where somebody's really nervous or they're about to jump into cold water and how warming up those breathing muscles or just kind of talk about the, the muscularity of, of that activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're muscles just like, just like anything else. And like you said, neck are our secondary breathing muscles, not our, not our primary ones. And the diaphragm's a muscle, just like, uh, just like other, other muscles. It's still, if you don't take it through that full range of motion before you need it, it's going to be a lot harder to, to get to that. Same thing if you were to sit in a chair for 20 hours and then all of a sudden get up and try and run a max out 100-yard sprint, it's going to be harder to do than if you take some time to dynamically move those muscles through the full range of motion, do some leg swings, do some lunges. That 100-yard sprint is going to be a lot easier if you take the time to warm it up. And it's the same, same thing with breathing. If we never hit those end ranges of motion, then when we need those end ranges of motion, which is when we start huffing and puffing, jumping into jumping into cold water, it's not going to be as readily available for us to use. Yeah, especially like that 360 degree like diaphragmatic breath because you're jumping into cold water and you're jumping into cold water with a whole bunch of people and then all of a sudden it's like a washing machine. And there's machine. no black line. Like it's, it's all these factors, it's open water. Most, yeah, and most then all often. of a sudden you're like, I can't breathe. Like panic attack. And it's all right in the chest. There's no breath getting even to the belly at that point. Which further exaggerates anxiety and the other things that you jumped in with the fear of. It's going to only exaggerate that when, when that happens. One of the things so I true. learned about when I was in massage school, and I had to retrain my, how I breathed, was that I was a thoracic breather. So when I breathed in, my belly went in. Mm-hmm. And when I breathed out, my belly went out. And that's like you'll never, can you explain that? Like you'll never get a full breath of air. With you, when you breathe like that, how does that affect the nervous system? Yeah, same way. Same way we were talking about. If you're, you're, if you're never taking a full breath, then your nervous system isn't ever touching into that what we call a rest and rest and digest or parasympathetic nervous system, because that breathing pattern's off. So your body never registers that you're taking a full breath. So we stay in that slightly heightened state, which increases things like anxiety, anxious thoughts, increases our uh, our heart, our resting heart rate, all those things are going to be heightened. And other things that we tend to see from that are, I mean, not to get too far, but like gut problems, we see stress problems, anxiety, all sorts of things from that because our body doesn't realize that we're breathing the way that we should be at, especially at a resting state. It thinks we're in a heightened state where it needs to be on and attentive. So gut issues, meaning the nutrition that comes in your body, not fully absorbing it's causing some yep. some some combating inside that's interesting and when you breathe diaphragmatically essentially like the diaphragm is like a big dome it's such a cool muscle mm-hmm. right it's so cool and it's got a big hole right in the center of it for like the inferior vena cava is that what goes through there yep like the okay and um so when you breathe in the diaphragm drops pushing the belly out so the lungs can fill right and then as you breathe out the diaphragm domes back out to get the air out of the lungs and the belly pulls in. And that would be that diaphragmatic breath where it's belly, it's, you know, front, it's front and back ribs, side ribs, chest. You can even feel it like in your upper back. And then those secondary muscles in the neck are, 
don't they lift the rib cage and help to depress the rib cage as you breathe? Mm-hmm. And at, th- those shouldn't be those shouldn't be overly active at rest though. Those right. the secondary ones are more if we're thinking okay, we're starting to huff and puff a little harder. We're we're getting to the point where our, our heart rate's elevated during a training run or a race. That's that's when those should be kicking in. We shouldn't be feeling so much of those if we're just sitting With at every rest. breath. Yeah. Right. So that could, that could be a sign of, so somebody has got like a chronic tight neck could possibly, possibly could have something to do with their breathing. Almost always. <laughs> Almost always. I, I would go much higher than possibly. What's your, what, <laughs> higher than possibly. Most breathing. <laughs> it's not just glutes and core, you guys. Newsflash here. <laughs> what do you have to say about the like? We carry a lot of stories, right? And so the stories we hear as yoga teachers and what I used to hear as a massage therapist is my bad back, my bad shoulder, my bad elbow, my bad knee, my bad ankle. And so, do you see those? Do you hear those stories? And how do you educate people to try and change that language around them? And why? Why would you want to change the language around that? See it all, all the time. And it's unfortunate, especially in, in chronic cases, like we talked about earlier with acute versus chronic. So acute being we sprain our ankle or we tweak our back. We expect there's a, a certain one, one day to, I mean, upwards of maybe two to three weeks in a, a pretty bad strain or something. We expect to see some, some actual physiological healing occurring, but uh, we get, we get, told these stories either to ourself or a lot of times it's, it's media, it's friends and family. It's people that mean well of, Oh, well you just, you just have a bad back or we have, we have a bad, we just have bad backs in our family or we have arthritis in our family. It's these things aren't, there's genetic components to it. I don't want to bone on bone. I'm bone on bone. Yeah. I don't, and I don't want to discount the genetic components to it, but, uh, your bone on bone in, in most cases is not the only reason why it's, why it's causing pain. If you believe that to be the case, then there's a good chance that it's it's likely heightening that and see it with in these chronic cases that absolutely has to be addressed for people to make progress when that's left unaddressed people don't reach their full potential recovery because if they believe they have a bad back then oh well I went to I went to go do some do some yard work and my back flared up and I was out for 3 days cuz I have a bad back so I guess it's always going to be that way versus hey that's you know that's a normal response you you haven't done that and in six months, you haven't done that in two years. You went out and shoveled for six hours. Yeah, you're a little sore. Like you don't have a bad back. You have muscles that haven't been worked in a while, and that can be hard for people to see though, because they're, they're these stories run run deep. And the longer pain's been going on, the longer they lose hope and they think that they can't get better. They think that it's going to be something that's always around. But there's not a and research shows time and time again. There's pretty bad correlation between what our X-rays say, what our MRIs say, and what is actually presenting as a, as a patient. We look at, you go take nine out of 10 people off the street and x-ray, there's probably arthritis and, and all of them. And there's probably a lot of people that aren't walking around in pain. So, so using that as the, the sole reason of why you're in pain is, is a very incomplete story. And like we talked about earlier, is that, a getting to why, why they're telling that story is, is a much harder thing. And is it, is it because they're avoiding something? Is it because, their worth is tied up in something that there's a lot of those, those can run, run deeper of why that's occurring, but it's important to address that or they're always going to be in pain. Is there a story? Is, do you have any stories you can share? Maybe one where you've helped, uh, someone kind of turn that table, maybe a successful, maybe an athlete that came in here. It doesn't even have to be an athlete. Someone that came in, you helped kind of flip the table and now they're, they're thriving. Yeah, I've, uh, the back pain example was was one from a patient who's on the the Taylor Taylor end of it now and doing doing great. Came in with eight ten years of of back pain. Back would always quote uh, give out uh, go out, and which isn't a isn't a physiological thing. It's not like the back's actually <laughs> that's not shifting a medical. You didn't learn <laughs> that's that in your doctorate yeah, program. We didn't we didn't learn that. <laughs> what does but, it mean to go out? Yeah, my back has but gone out, and that's what they feel. And it becomes that that's uh, whenever I feel that, I know I'm going to be hung up for two weeks, and they feel something happen, which feels like going out or whatever that may feel like. And then mentally, it's like there are it's already a done a done decision of the next two weeks. I'm going to be on the couch. I'm going to be horizontal. I'm not going to be able to do anything. And that cycle is going on with this, with this guy for 
eight, eight years and every, you know, started out as once a year would happen and then twice a year was happening and then every quarter was happening and then once a month and then it was happening multiple times a month. And it's, it gets to the point where if, if we don't break that, it's going to be disabled at the, at the rate, rate they're going, but being able to gradually introduce some movement movements that, and, and not on day one, but movements that are fearful movements that when I arch, I know it hurts and being able to gradually work into some different positions that introduce that in a safe and controlled way builds confidence. And then like, Oh, Hey, I would expect that to hurt. But now that I'm using certain muscles and now that I'm properly bracing and strong enough to handle that, okay, well, what else, what else you got? And then you keep layering that on and eventually we're dead, we're picking up kettlebells off the ground and we're carrying heavy stuff and doing things that, uh, wouldn't have never dreamed of doing because the confidence is there. And now the story isn't okay. I don't, maybe I don't have a bad back. Maybe, maybe this is something that I can, I can see the light of. And in some of these cases, it's not going to ever be fully gone when you've been dealing with 10 years of back pain. But if you go from walking around at an eight out of 10 back pain every day of your life to occasionally getting a two out of three back pain, it's a big win in my book. How long was that, that you've been working with this person? Uh, probably since I think February, beginning of February, we started and it's a little more front loaded on visits. We're initially coming in twice a week because they need more supervision, but lately it's more transitioned to once a week and then every other week and then once a month. And now it's just a maintenance of every six weeks or so he pops in to check in just to revamp some of the exercises and, uh, kind of re, you know, re refine things more so than, He's independent at this point with what he's doing. He's back to doing all stuff around the house and really cool to see. Yeah. When we see, when we see people who, um, I mean, we all see it in our life, right? Like people will say, God, I'm so sick of this or, you know, this negative pattern in my life, da, da, da. And um, then they'll ask for the resources and we'll provide the resources. And then it's just back in the same old pattern. And so instead of you know, shaking my head and going, oh my God, why are they doing it? I'm just like, it doesn't suck enough yet. Like it just doesn't suck enough yet. And so this person, it's so interesting how it was like, you know, once every six, then it was like once a month and it was like multiple times a month and then it becomes debilitating. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking a decade and we live in the society where like living in pain is, it's almost the norm. And what do you think about that idea that like living in pain is just what you do, right? It's, it's like, like a badge. It's yeah, like a badge a, of honor. Yeah, like, a little bit of it. Which, what do you have? What do you have? Well, I have this. I hear yeah. it, We hear it at the pool all the time. Oh, you got a grade two? I got a grade three. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> grade two sprain? Mine's grade three. It's oh, all, yeah, it's yeah. All yeah. The way I had a grade yeah. two and then I made it a grade three. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you have to say to people who, you know, we got a lot of athletes that are listening to this, so they've got little things going on and, um, you know, I'm not an exception to that. And, um, that might be like, well, this is just the way it is. Yeah. I always, I always say pain, pain's common, but, but not normal. And it's, it's something that we, we walk around with and, uh, especially in these overuse cases of, we look at tendonitis or even, even more significant things, rotator cuff tears, hip labral tears are rarely one-time incidents. It's almost always hundreds, thousands of repetitions of incorrect movement that eventually we fray away at our, you know, at our, our joints and our, our muscles. This isn't a one-time thing. These are overuse things that can be absolutely can be corrected. Now, if you, if you wait till you're too far gone and that's where we talk proactive versus reactive, if we wait until it is at a point where it's so bad that you can't sit for more than five minutes before your knees and hips hurt, then you dug a deeper hole. It still doesn't mean that you can't, can't reverse it, but it's going to take a little more work. The earlier on we address these things through managing volume, work, working with the coach, managing your volume, restoring some of the movement and mobility and strength limitations or imbalances you have, a lot of these things can clear up and see it time and time again that people can rebound very, very well from these things if we give the, you know, the body has an amazing way to heal if we if we give it the right environment to do so. And uh, if you're willing to do that, then we see these things, we've seen crazy back issues and hip issues and knee issues 
with a hundred percent reversal just because we give it the opportunity to, to heal in the way that our body is made to do. And the thing is, is that you're not, you're not healing anyone. No. Like you're, you're not doing that. They're doing it with your guidance and your, your knowledge of the body and your experience and, um, and then tailoring that to their body and their experience and then their body is healing. But they have to do the work. You yeah, know? They need to be invested. Yep. That's that connection because, you know, a lot of, a lot of our listeners too are endurance athletes. So it's about getting in the miles. So the strength training sort of takes a back seat. Right. And so, I mean, probably not the most ideal thing to do, but especially as, I mean, everybody should do it, but especially as aging athletes, you know, I'm in my forties and I'm still logging some good miles, but strength training and strength training can be, in my opinion, it can be anything that's moving the body in a, in a, in a, in a way that isn't normal Mm -hmm. to what your, your overuse uh, possibilities are right. So for me, it's swimming, biking, and running. So what would be strength training for me? Yoga, power, yoga, uh, squats, like uh, non-weight resistant stuff at home that we can do. And I don't, I don't leave it to the gym to 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 dictate it. Like I can do stuff at home. So how important is it? How important is strength training for athletes, especially endurance yeah. athletes? Yeah, and any athlete needs to be strength trained. Like you said, people people hear that and they immediately think to squatting 300 pounds. It's like that strength training can mean a lot of things. A lot of times that's for most people that's body weight and glute bridges and core work and squats and lunges and all those things are strength training and things that are going to help with if whether your goal is performance or longevity, it's something you have to be doing. It's in in my opinion, it's a non-negotiable thing. If, if your goal is either to do it for the long haul, or if your goal is to perform better, either way, it, it has to be done in my opinion. What's, so th- there's mobility training now too, I guess, the, I guess they're just words. So w- what would be the difference between mobility versus strength or are they pretty much the same thing? Yeah, I, 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 I tend to, who, what your interpretation is of it. Sure. Yeah. The, a lot of, a lot of the buzzwords can be used interchangeably nowadays with, uh, like flexibility and mobility and strength training and stability training, all those things that, uh, a good, a good program can tackle both mobility and strength in one. They're, there are some different, you know, slightly different twists to it, but if you're strong through your full range of motion, then that's mobility, that's strength expressed, that both those things are being expressed in that case. Now, flexibility, if you're just doing a passive stretch, like you throw your hamstring up on a, a chair and hold it there for 60 seconds, we're not building strength in there, and we're probably not getting the most flexibility, mobility benefits either, because that's more of a, a short-term approach. We're not our body has no reason to hang, hang on to that range of motion because we haven't, we haven't stabilized through it. We haven't strengthened through the range of motion after, after using it. I was going to ask you that question, like stretching versus activation. Um, and hamstrings, you know, people say, my hamstrings, hamstrings are, are so tight. They're so tight. But what I've learned is that a lot of times they're weak. Absolutely. And a lot of times their, their core is weak because the core plays a big I role. I just tighten my core up. Yeah. I know. <laughs> picture, picture yourself. And I'm breathing 360. Glutes and core. Glutes <laughs> and core are activated and I'm breathing at 360 degrees. Glutes and core is enough. Now you have to remember breathing into it and it's uh, a whole different ballgame. I'm sorry. interrupted <laughs> yeah, you for a shitty joke. Uh, it, it was worth it. Uh, yeah. So we, th- we think though like core, core is a big component of hamstrings too. There's a lot of people that can get, can get someone to touch their toes within, within minutes of people that haven't touched their toes in five years when it's not a true hamstring issue. And a lot, for a lot of people, it isn't. There's a lot of people that develop this tightness, but they just don't know how to move and control their body. So their hamstrings lock up because your body's trying to create protection somewhere. You think lying on your back, if your core is relaxed and not properly, uh, not properly firing when you're, when you're lifting your leg, it causes what we call an anterior pelvic tilt. So the hips rock forward, which creates this tension and stretch in our hamstrings. You try and lift your leg and it doesn't want to go anywhere because your hamstrings are already pre-tensed before the movement even starts. So we say, oh, I must need to stretch my hamstrings more. But all we t- all it takes often is properly teaching them how to engage their core. We slightly get this, what we call posterior pelvic tilt, the hips rock backwards. And then all of a sudden they have 20, 30 more degrees of, of range of motion just from activating their core. 
that sounds like a much easier and more fun approach than stretching your hamstrings every day for, and foam rolling every day for two years. Like I hear people do and they're like, has it gotten better? Eh, I, I don't know. Not really. Still, still tight. And cause people are just usually doing the wrong things. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about foam rolling. Like it's, we have foam rollers and we use them often. Um, every night we do a little bit of foam rolling, but I, I would say my IT bands are like the last thing that I roll. Um, I'll work on my calves. I work on my plantar fascia. I work on my quads. And, and it's not a lot. I'm not on it for an hour. It's maybe five minutes or so. Um, but with the foam roller, like I feel like people get it and they're just doing IT bands. And what is that doing for them? And the the IT band's a super resilient structure. We're we're not going to be a foam rolling. They've they've done studies and it takes upwards of a thousand pounds of force to create a one <laughs> percent change in your IT band. So if you want to create more than a one percent change, you would need multiple thousands of pounds of pressure to create a true physiological change. Now, if you're taking that much pressure, your IT band, you're probably going to pass out before you, <laughs> before you notice anything. So people in, uh, and, and foam rolling and not to discount foam rolling, foam rolling works, but not for the reasons that people think it does. And it's, it can be a good recovery tool, but I think it affects, I know from, from research and from other things that it affects the nervous system more than it does the actual, we're not actually breaking up scar tissue. We're not making physiological changes. We're telling the nervous system we're giving it a stimulus that causes it to relax but then that follow-up is what are we doing with that new range of motion are we using it and that could be through got to be through movement through some mobility work through some light strengthening if we're not using that after we loosen it up then we see this big increase in how loose our muscles are and then it goes back to baseline and then we see this and it's this yo-yo thing of back and forth and back and forth and people don't see change because we're not properly supplementing that with movement movement strengthening mobility work that's what hits save on the document and that's what helps us to save some of that range of motion that we inherited through our flexibility work or foam rolling so like this morning beads you hopped on the foam roller before you went out for your long run like what do you think about that like doing a little bit of rolling bef- just to get some thing- things a little bit pliable before mm-hmm. you go out like I'll, I'll roll my feet sometimes my feet sensation are tight. is less i should say when I do that sensation and yeah. whatever is wor- what I'm working through, like my glutes. Or That's our word for um, pain and pain. discomfort. We, we keep Sometimes it keep it neutral. The like full it. terminology is swirly sensation. Swirly sensation. Yeah. Right. Some swirly yeah. happening. Because we don't want to trigger that brain that says that yeah. this is bad. It's like, okay, this is what it is. Take the emotion out of it and what's going on. I, yeah. That's, I mean, it can be used as a good tool for warm up too. And you're following that with, running or biking or swimming or activity, which you're going to help to save some of that. And, but also knowing why, why you're doing it. If you're, if you're doing it because you're like, Hey, I have to loosen and stretch my muscles might not be the reason, but if you're just trying to get a little blood flow to the area and get your nervous system to say, Hey, I can push off these sensations that I'm feeling great. Then it's a a valuable tool. But, uh, for a lot of people, the only problem I have with it is when people think they need to spend, 30 minutes on a foam roller loosening things up because there's just better there's so much better uses of our time if it's a quick we're just hitting some corners and loosening some things up i think it's a great tool but people that default to too long on it is where i just think it's a waste of time if you're putting more than five minutes on the on the roller all right let's let's stay with this um with this kind of topic because kt tape is like all over the race course what are your thoughts if it if it helps, it helps. <laughs> it's uh, that's uh, it I need some more context on there. I mean, there could be there's there's some physiological benefits to it, but there's a, a big placebo component to it too. And but I, I don't I don't care if it works if it's a placebo or if it's physiological. If it works, it works. I'm I'm not steering someone away from that. It doesn't take that long on the scheme of things. If they're fine paying for a roll of tape and they don't mind throwing it on every time before they run, and it helps them. I'm fine with that. So would again, you, if they believe in it, if you believe in it. But would you say it was a solution? No, it's not a, it's not a solution because we're, I think it's a better alternative than some of having to take Advil or ibuprofen before every run to get through it. I think KT tape's a better alternative than that, but both ones are just masking the symptoms if you're not, uh, I think if you're using it in addition to trying to move better and 
get stronger and address some of the things, it's, I'm perfectly fine with it. As a part of like your investment. Yeah. Yeah. And what about like uh, the whole custom orthotic and the smart feet and all of that? What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm probably going to offend some people, but I'm anti-orthotic in in most cases. I I think it's uh, creating other imbalances and limitations and more of a crutch than, again, it's not really addressing the problem. If it truly is a foot strength issue, we should strengthen the foot, but a lot of times it traces up to ankle mobility. If our ankles aren't moving well, we're going to have to overpronate more than we should if our hips aren't stabilizing, same thing. I found myself going down that road, like smart feet. Oh, my smart feet are worn out. Going to get more smart feet, smart feet, smart. And then one day I just noticed, like, I can't even walk across the kitchen floor barefoot. That's it's a red flag. That's a red flag. And so I and and I remember talking to my mom, who's forty years older than me, and she was like, "I walk barefoot all the time. I have great feet." And I was like, "Hmm." So I started. I just started walking across the kitchen floor, and then I would put my shoes on, and then I would like walk from the kitchen to the bedroom and then back and forth. And then, and now I can walk anywhere. And I realized, because as I was learning in massage school, I was like, this isn't, number one, it's not, it's not solving anything. But I, but once I learned that the foot is like the arch is all muscle, Mm -hmm. it's all muscle. And then we have so many bones in there. And like one of the classes that I was in, we built the foot with clay. That was like one of the things, you'd build the whole body with clay. It was really, really cool way to learn. I would have failed that class. Oh my God, it was amazing. You had like these little tools that you could put the fibers in and everything. Anyway, and when I built the foot, I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And I realized that my left foot where my arch had fallen, like, oh, well, oh yeah. And I'd heard about somebody else who had a fallen arch. Oh, okay, well, I guess I'm just like that. And I'm like, then I realized like, well, wait a minute, that's just kind of an overstretched muscle, right? Like those, those are just maybe overstretched. This is my thought. And what if I just strengthen them? And so, um, so I, I totally agree with you just not because I have a doctorate in physical therapy, but because I experienced it myself that, um, so many of my foot issues in the past were coming from the fact that my feet were really weak and, uh, and that you can strengthen them. Like, do you think that we should be able to walk around barefoot? What do you think about walking around barefoot? Absolutely. Everyone should be able to walk around barefoot. I know that's people always throw their shoes on, even if they're in the house or need some kind of support. And that's one of those red flags to me of we should be able to, if we choose not to is different, but you should, you should be able to, and we can build our arches up. I think, especially in a strength training sense, we should do a lot of our strength training barefoot, Mm. uh, because Mm. that's working some different angles and different things of if you're doing lunges or squats or something, it not only strengthens those areas more but also reveals where some things we might have some mobility limitations that can be hidden with shoes especially when we talk shoes with a with an elevated heel we can we can hide around some mobility issues if we're always in a shoe what do you think about the whole zero drop thing like what ultra's doing with their shoes like there's no drop in from toe to heel toe to heel i think it's good in terms of because we see a lot of compensations happen from people that are chronically in an elevated heel in terms of shortening of the Achilles, we lose ankle range of motion. So I, I think it's, I think it's beneficial. Yeah. Cool. My God, we just threw a lot. I know. We just threw a lot down. This is good stuff. But I want to talk about what happens. I know we got to keep moving. So someone who comes in here and they see you, like what, what do they walk away with? So a client that comes in just to see. Yeah. So people who are local, we got people who are local here and they're like, got their, area of opportunity they have their sensation mm-hmm. how do what do they walk away with when they when they come see you as a yeah so every everyone's plan is going to be custom to what their goals are and so we get i get people in here in a wide range of the spectrum so we get the reactive types that hey this is full-blown full-blown tendonitis that's been going on for for way too long and uh see great results with those people but there's more of a, it requires a little more in-person stuff. That's a longer, a longer term plan. If it happened in six months, we're not going to get rid of it in two weeks, let alone a month. We're not going to get rid of it in a short amount of time. So there's that end. And then there's the more proactive end of people I see that are coming in They're They notice they're usually pretty aware with their movement. They, they say, Hey, I, I have this thing that's not quite right. I don't really know what it's coming from. And regardless of where your entry point is, the subjective interview is a big piece of that of getting training background getting what uh, what you're doing for preventive stuff any prehab type stuff if if any what kind of training volume people are putting in 
And based on all those factors, then run people through the uh, movement assessment to see where uh, global movement deficiencies are in terms of where people are compensating with things like can you perform a basic body weight squat and lunge and different like to check rotational things because running and all sports are very rotational in nature. So start global, find where any limitations are, and then test those things specifically of specific muscle testing, specific mobility testing to either confirm or deny what we see with the, so hey, with your squat, it looks like I'm guessing there's some ankle mobility limitations. We want to check that, confirm that. And then based on all that information we get, get a super prioritized plan and usually, I mean, based on how often people are coming in, two to five things that people are working on for their uh, a list of exercises that are going to give them the most bang for the buck to help whatever they're whatever they're coming in for. Because most people are time crunched, right? But th- th- they have that honest concern to to heal their body, but they're also time crunched. So giving them just five exercises is pretty manageable. Mm-hmm. And for most, it's it's three because people people <laughs> say they could do five, and I always give less than what they because <laughs> until they can prove that, that. In, yeah. until <laughs> they can prove that to me, I uh, I don't I don't quite believe it. And I tell people seven days a week, hoping that they'll hit four to five. You've got some. You've got a really great Instagram channel. Um, you do lots of videos and things like that. So how can people follow you there? Yeah, it's at IO as an in Inside Out Strength Performance on Instagram. Same for Facebook. IOStrengthPerformance.com for my website as well. Pretty active on social media channels, so that's a good, good easy place to find me, follow along. Try and put a lot of preventative rehab type strategies on there for for all walks of life. So. A lot of hopefully useful information that people can people can find and, and interact with. Awesome, thank you so much. And um, and if people are local, they can come and see you here in North County. He's in Carlsbad, and you can just make a beach day out of it and come hang out at this super cool place. Thank you so much. We're gonna uh, click off of here and come back on. We're gonna do. Um, we've got some questions from our Patreon community, and they're gonna get some exclusive content. Cool. Woo-hoo. Thanks, guys. Oh man, that was super informative, dude. It was like, that was great. A lot of rabbit holes ahead of you guys too.